0: Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said, don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognise him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist.
1: Please keep your Bibles open in Matthew 17. And you may remember from two weeks ago when we studied Matthew 16, Jesus said this, Whoever wants to be my disciple must... Deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And two weeks ago, we concluded that living for Jesus means living a life of joyful and sacrificial service of others rather than ourselves. It means living for others. Like us, trains are made to work. They're made to serve. They're made to serve in a certain direction. And we're the same. We're made by God to serve, to live for Him, to love other people, to live to, to head in the direction God has laid out before us and do the work that he's laid out for us to do. As Christians, we no longer live for ourselves. We don't seek our own comforts. We seek the good of others and ultimately the glory of God. And that was the big lesson from two weeks ago. Now, what I possibly didn't say that time that is of the utmost importance uh, is this. Denying yourself and living for Jesus is not natural and you go against your own natural instinct to do so. Because we live in sinful flesh, our natural instinct is to live for ourselves, to please ourselves, to comfort ourselves. And if your strategy for denying yourself and living for Jesus is to take yourself outside and give yourself a good talking to and say you're a Christian and you need to do better. You need to live for Jesus. You need to stop living for yourself. If that's your strategy to give yourself a good talking to every so often, it won't work. <laughs> it won't last long. Pulling up your own bootstraps won't work. The only way the only way we can obey this command to live for Jesus, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow another person and live the way he wants us to live over and above ourselves is if we're convinced that he's worth following and if we're given supernatural help in order to follow him. That needs to happen. We need to be persuaded that Jesus is worth following and we need supernatural help to do it. And the disciples did too. They needed a lot of persuading, a lot of convincing, and they needed Jesus' help. And they knew they needed help, and it's clear they just struggled to get their head around what was going on. And I think that's a big part of the reason why, it's clear that's a big part of the reason why, Jesus took his disciples upon a high mountain. He chose three in particular to follow him, and to show, him, show them who he really was. Who it was he was calling them to follow. Who is it that we're following? Who is this Jesus that we're following? Is he really worth denying my very self for? Dying to self. Is it worth dying to self to live for Jesus? Particularly in a world in which it's getting harder to do? We're going to look at this passage and find out the answer. In the first four, first four verses of our passage, we learned that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of all of history to that point. But the way in which Jesus will fulfill history and enter into his glory is unexpected for a great Saviour King. And the disciples are struggling to get their head around it. And we continue to struggle to get our head around it today. We find it hard still to be convinced of who Jesus is and follow him with our all in every sphere of our life. It was really interesting to hear Matthew say just then that he he kind of finds it easier to glorify God and more natural comes to more naturally to live for Jesus' glory at work than it does at home. That was really interesting. And I'm sure the same can be said for all of us. We find it easier in some spheres than others to live for jesus glory the path to jesus glory is going to be via rejection and suffering and crucifixion and we talked about this two weeks ago jesus is the suffering servant of isaiah 53 there's a lot of words on the screen you can read along or just listen isaiah 53 teaches us that jesus would be 900 years later And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And if you grew up with Colin Buchanan, it's impossible not to sing the song as you read the verse, isn't it? To follow Jesus, to follow the one who was rejected and killed by his culture around him and jesus is trying to help the disciples to understand this and he wants them to understand that this is what must happen to him and his followers before he shows them what comes next which is the transfiguration for what comes next is glorious and spectacular and encouraging and heartening for the disciples but it must be heard in the context of the necessity of the suffering and hardship. They must see the glory in the context of the suffering and the necessity of suffering and hardship, and so must we. We must understand the glory of our Lord Jesus in the context of our present present suffering and hardship for us to follow him rightly and to persevere through the suffering and the hardship. What comes next? The transfiguration was also prophesied long ago by Isaiah. Isaiah continues, After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I, God, will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressions, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. After he has suffered and paid the penalty for all who have entrusted themselves to him, the Holy Son of God raised up to new life. And this is the part that the disciples seem to be missing. Even in the next section, as we read on next week in chapter 17, when Jesus predicts his death a second time, he tells them again, I'm going to die and I'm going to raise to new life, they're distraught. And it's like... Did you miss the second bit? I'm going to die and raise to new life. But they're just distraught at the idea that their Lord and Saviour will suffer and die at all. And you can certainly sympathise with that. The context of Jesus' necessary suffering and death, I'm labouring the point on purpose, (laughs) must be the context that we have in our minds and our hearts as we look upon the glory of the transfiguration. The transfiguration coming as it does here after the bleak predictions of rejection and suffering by our Lord Jesus, it strengthens and it emphasizes the link between self-sacrifice and glorious vindication. There's a strong link in Christ and therefore in us as his followers between self-sacrifice and glorious vindication. The two go together which is strange in any other human context. Suffering, hardship, and glory don't normally all go together. But they do in Christ, and they must for us. Look again at your Bibles, chapter 17, verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun... His clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Awesome things happen on mountains in the Bible. God met with Moses on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19. The people had to stay at the bottom. They weren't even allowed to touch the mountain lest they die. The priests were allowed to go halfway up. Moses went all the way to the top to meet with God as the representative of God's people. He was kind of like the great high priest who went all the way into the Holy of Holies to meet with God. And even then, God was veiled in a massive cloud of smoke. Can you see the parallels? The mountain, the cloud. Moses went up on the high mountain, met with God, was given the Ten Commandments. In that time, Moses was like the mediator between God and his people. And when Moses came back down, his face shone so brightly that he had to veil it so he didn't blind his friends. Sunglasses probably weren't invented back then. Moses is this towering figure of the Old Testament, the one through whom the law was given to God's people, Deuteronomy. And he appears, strangely and amazingly, here, at the Transfiguration, to have a, have a yarn with Jesus. Awesome things happened on high mountains. In the Bible, Elijah encountered God atop a mountain. 1 Kings chapter 19, Mount Horeb. In his desperation at the terrible sins of Israel, Elijah pleaded with God and God called him up a mountain and he met with him and he heard the pleas and he told him what to do. And Elijah went away and he did it. Of course, he did. Elijah represents the prophets of the Old Testament. And amazingly and strangely, he appears here with Jesus to have a yarn. And the glorious Lord Jesus was transfigured before their eyes. And no one really knows, apart from Peter, James, and John, exactly what that means and what happened. But we're told... His face shone like the sun. And we're told his clothes became as white as the light. There was a physical manifestation of Jesus' incredible divine glory on display for his three disciples to see. They had a glimpse of the all-surpassing glory of Jesus atop a mountain. The horror of the prediction of his death gave way to this all-surpassing moment of the glory that shone before them. What a joy and a blessing and a comfort for Peter and James and John who just heard their Lord is going to suffer and be rejected and die and they must have thought, hang on a minute, I thought he was our glorious king. Oh, wait, yes, he is. Look at this. Jesus is our glorious King, after all. What a beautiful moment of comfort for them, and unsurprisingly, they just don't know what to do with themselves in the moment. And Peter pipes up as he always does. He's uh, he's bold. Peter, you have got to give him that. He's a passionate guy. He pipes up and he's like, "I'll build. A, I can build a few tents if you want. Um, what do you reckon?" It's not a good plan, Jesus. I'll build a shelter for the three of you. Is that all right? Um, he doesn't know what to say, I don't think. Now, I know that Steve Olden always has a toolkit in the back of his ute. If you need a tool and you need to get something done and you kind of forget, you ask Steve. He's probably got a tool for the job in the car park uh, right now. Can I ask, what was Peter planning on building the three shelters out of? <laughs> With what tools? Did he have a toolkit slung over his back as he walked up the mountain? Uh, with Jesus, I don't know. It's a, it's kind of a comical moment, and I, and I think it's just an over, overawing moment uh, for the disciples. Understandably, we go from the sublime transfigured Jesus to the ridiculous kind of Peter trying to build some shelters. Uh, in one moment, I don't know how I'd react either. Probably even worse, even more embarrassing. Um, not only is their Lord transfigured, but there's two pillars of the old testament appear before them these people they they know about they're good jewish guys they know their bible they know who moses is they know who elijah is absolutely and here they are appearing before them uh, with jesus these awesome pillars of the old testament but as awesome as moja moses and elijah were They were never able to deal with the problem of sin that plagued and infected the people of God throughout the whole Old Testament, causing them to rebel again and again and again against the God who lovingly stitched them together in their mother's wombs. They continued to rebel against him, and Moses and Elijah were not the answer, but Jesus is. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the one they've been waiting for. Jesus is the great Messiah who fulfills the Old Testament. God's promises are all answered yes in Christ. Jesus is the only one worthy to die for the sins of many. Jesus is the only one worthy to fulfill the prophecies foretold of the Messiah to come. It is Jesus who is a truly glorious one. And Moses and Elijah, as quickly as they appeared, disappear again. It is natural and unsurprising that Jesus is the one and the only one who can truly and completely please the Father. In the next few verses, we bear witness to the almighty, eternal Father's approval of his Son, our glorious Lord Jesus. Verse 5, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them and a voice from the cloud said this is my son whom I love with him I am well pleased, listen to him. There's not that many exclamation marks in the Bible but there's one here. When the disciples heard this they fell face down to the ground terrified terrified, (coughs) excuse me But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. God speaks from heaven, and he he declares who Jesus is. The creator of the universe, he declares who Jesus is. His Son, with whom he is well pleased. The one worth listening to. The one and only one. Always worth listening to. This moment is practically identical, save for one difference, to the moment of Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River, in Matthew chapter 3. It's on the screen. As soon as Jesus was baptised... He went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. What's the difference? What's the one difference? One, listen to him. Listen to him. God the Father's declaration pulls together two great Old Testament expectations. Firstly, that the Messiah would come, the King, the Glorious One, the Saviour King would come, and here He has come. The one spoken about in Psalm chapter 2 has arrived in the person and work of Jesus. And secondly, also that the suffering servant would come, the one who be willing to be, would be willing to suffer at the hands of men for the sake of His people and die and be raised to new life has come also in the person and work of Jesus, Isaiah chapter 42. Here at the Transfiguration, God is saying that Jesus is both king and suffering servant in the same person, king and suffering servant. He is a Messiah who must suffer and be killed and on the third day raised to new life. And he adds something new Then he said of the baptism, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. This is the one, the one and only one, the one who we've been expecting for centuries to come and solve the sin problem of the world. Listen to him. And the disciples are understandably understandably terrified, but Jesus doing what Jesus does face beaming, clothes shining like the light, bends down to the ground and touches them and consoles them and comforts them and lifts them up and says, Don't be afraid. I'm here with you. Don't be terrified. You have peace with me. Jesus is the one who removes fear and instills peace in his people. Don't be afraid. I'm here. Others in the past have failed. I will not fail. Where chaos once reigned, hope now finds its king in Jesus. Don't be afraid. I'm here. Jesus is the first and the last. Jesus is yet another in a long line of great men of faith and women sent by God with God's approval. But where Abraham and Jacob and Moses and Elijah and David and Solomon and others failed, Jesus will succeed. Where they were inadequate, Jesus is sufficient. Let's read this last little bit. Verse 9. That's all coming down the mountain. Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Why then do the teachers of the law say, Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. They did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. The disciples understood what he was talking to them about, John the Baptist, who came and suffered and was killed. He came, the great prophet, the next Elijah, declaring the glories of God, and they cut his head off for it. Jesus is referring to the prophecy of Malachi, chapter 4, which looks forward to the new Elijah coming, who is Christ. Surely the day is coming, it will burn like a furnace. This is the last chapter of the Old Testament. All the arrogant and evil doer will be stubble. The day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them, but for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked. There will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him in Horeb for all Israel. See, I'll send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children, the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total Destruction. Moses and Elijah are both towering figures of the Old Testament. They are, but both of them give way to the coming of the glorious Lord Jesus. He is the one in whom all of the Mosaic law is fulfilled. He is the one who declares the goodness of God in himself in a way that the prophets of old never could. He's the king, he's the son of God. But his pathway to glory is suffering. What's it mean for us? We ought to listen to Jesus. He truly is the glorious one, worth listening to. He truly is the one worth following. But to follow him means suffering and rejection. Life for the disciples was about to get really really hard. There was going to be some great moments as they preached the gospel. Read Acts again soon. You see the wonders of the church going out from Jerusalem to all Judea and Samaria and thousands flocking to faith in Jesus Christ. And ultimately, It's probable that all of the 12 were martyred. Peter most certainly was killed for what they preached at the hands of the Roman Empire. Jesus has lovingly given the disciples the smallest glimpse, just the smallest glimpse of his cosmic gloriousness Gloriousness isn't a word, but it's the gloriousness of Jesus that's going to keep them going when they are rejected and they suffer and they're killed for preaching the gospel. It's Jesus' gloriousness that will keep them denying themselves and taking up their cross and following him. We live in a culture that's rapidly growing in it's hostility towards Christianity, don't we? Rapidly. Three generations ago, talk to those in the room who were around, three generations ago, three generations ago, it was fairly normal to be a Christian and fairly normal to go to church. And there was a f- fair amount of respect for people who were Christians. And did you know, on your licence if I was a minister 60 years ago, it would say reverend. Reverend Gavin Oram, on your license. There's a fair amount of respect for Christianity in our culture three generations ago. One generation ago, Christians were kind of annoying. Wowsers, party poopers kind of people. You didn't really want around if you wanted to have fun. They were kind of a pest. Today... Christians are haters. Us, the culture, we hate people. How'd that happen? (laughs) No, we don't. (laughs) We love people. No, no, no. Christians are haters. Increasingly, Christians are being put into morally compromising situations in their workplaces, aren't you? It's getting harder and harder and harder to live as a Christian in your workplace. It's not okay. You're not allowed to stand for the beliefs that you have. Everyone else is, but not you. And it's not always just as simple as quitting your job and going and working somewhere else, particularly with 10% inflation and rising interest rates if you've got a mortgage. You can't just up and leave because you're asked to wear a purple lanyard. How do we keep denying ourselves and living for Jesus? In a hostile world, how do we do it? Just taking yourself outside and giving yourself a stern talking to won't work. It might work for a little while, but not long. We must continue to gaze upon the gloriousness of our Lord Jesus, remembering who He is. He is the one. The fulfillment of the whole Old Testament, the one who died and rose again. He is the glorious king of the universe. He's the glorious king of your workplace and your family and your community and our governments. He's the glorious king of them all, despite what's going on around you. He truly is almighty, all powerful, all knowing, infinitely loving. He really does. Have everything in hand. And he actually lovingly and deliberately handed you your life circumstances on purpose. And he asks that you live for his glory in it, knowing who he is. And that he in his gloriousness is with you by the Holy Spirit, encouraging you reminding you that he is a sovereign king even over our hostile culture. We might be marginalised, we might be criticised, we might be called haters, we might lose our jobs, we might be forced to quit our jobs. I may well be imprisoned one day for continuing to preach and teach Culturally unpopular truths such that abortion is wrong and euthanasia is wrong and practising homosexuality is wrong. And the Bible says so. And I could go to jail for that one day. But Jesus will be there. And he is there in all his gloriousness with us. So we see his glory and that... Is what motivates us to deny ourselves and take up our cross and live for him and suffer for a little while until we enter glory with him forevermore. Friends, the times to come may be, will be, increasingly uncomfortable for us as followers of Jesus. They will be. It's going to get harder, but it doesn't change the fact that Jesus is glorious. He's all-powerful. He's risen. He loves us. He's with us. And He will come again in glory to judge both the living and the dead. If you've closed your Bibles, open them back up. Matthew chapter 24. And I'm going to read these two passages, and then I'm going to pray to finish. Matthew chapter 24, just a little way down the track, from Matthew chapter 17, verse 30. At that time, the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn. They'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power. And great glory, and he'll send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Scooch down to verse 42. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he'd have kept watch and he would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Let's pray. Loving Father and Almighty God, we thank you for our glorious, glorious Lord Jesus. We thank you that in all his splendor and majesty and glory and power and truth and holiness and justice, he was willing to suffer at the hands of those he made, sinful rebels like me. He was willing to suffer at their hands and be treated poorly and spat on and flogged, crucified, rejected by those closest to him. We thank you that he rose in incredible glory. Lord, I pray for everyone here and all in our church that we'll continue to see his glory anew and afresh every day as we go out into the world in its increasing hostility against us. Help us to be faithful. Help us to glorify Jesus. Help us to not compromise. Help us to know how to work out how to do that when it just seems impossible, when we're left with an impossible decision to compromise our faith or make quit our jobs or whatever it is, Lord. We pray that you help us by your Spirit to deny ourselves, to live for Jesus' glory. Please remind us, Holy Spirit, again and again of the gloriousness of our Lord so we might keep going in this life until we get to the end and spend time resting in glory with our God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.